0: What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Liberty.
1: The double tap where you bomb some b- supposed bad guys, then anyone who comes to help them, you bomb them too. And sometimes you do the triple tap where you wait around a couple hours and when people finally decide it's safe and they send a few more rescuers out, then you bomb them too. And this is the absolute horror show that America is perpetrating on these people.
0: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host... What's up, my Liberty kitty cats, and welcome back to your favorite podcast that is hosted by me. That's the original Lions of Liberty podcast, which you can find here every single Monday on Lions of Liberty, where I interview great minds and leaders in the liberty movement, like the one you're going to hear today with one of my most frequently booked guests, and one of my most requested guests. This is the same person, the great Scott Horton. We'll be talking to him in just a bit, but first, I want to remind you that this is the 365th episode of the original flagship Lions of Liberty podcast that we've been doing for nearly five years. That means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 365. And uh, that five year mark is vastly approaching. In fact, this coming Thursday, November 13th, is the exact five year anniversary from the first ever Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm going to have some more information about what we're going to do for that show, uh, including how we're going to celebrate that uh, five year anniversary, as well as a brand new t shirt. Yes, a brand new t shirt available in the Lions of Liberty store over at lionsofliberty.store that you can get either for free which I'll tell you about at the end of the show, or you can just go buy it right now. That's also possible. Either way, head over to lionsofliberty.store. I'll post a link over in the show notes. Go ahead and check out that T-shirt. It's pretty cool. It's designed by our friend Dan Smots, the host of the System is Down podcast, a show you really got to check out. Scott Horton was actually on that show fairly recently as well. But speaking of the man himself, Scott Horton, we have a very important subject to be discussing today. And uh, because it is so important, we're going to get right to it. <laughs> All right, my guest today has made several appearances on this program. He is the author of the incredibly important book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, which we discussed the last time he was on the show. He is the editorial director of Antiwar.com and the managing director of the Libertarian Institute. You can hear him weekly here in Los Angeles on Antiwar Radio every Sunday on KPFK. He is also the host of the Scott Horton Show, where he has conducted thousands upon thousands, literally, of interviews on foreign policy. As far as I'm concerned, he is the liberty movement's foremost expert on foreign policy. I'm always pleased to speak with my friend Scott horton scott are you ready to roar
1: yeah sure thanks for having me man appreciate it
0: of course man i know you're ready to roar you're always roaring everywhere you go you are roaring about your passion which is foreign policy and last time we talked uh we talked about afghanistan and your book fool's errand which again if you haven't listened to that interview which i'll post in the show notes or read that book Stop what you're doing, pause this podcast, go get it, go download it, buy it at Barnes & Noble, wherever you gotta get it, and read it right now. It's extremely important. It tells you everything you could ever want to know about the war in Afghanistan. But today I wanted to look at... If it's even possible to have a more ignored war than the one in Afghanistan, it's the war in Yemen, and this is a war that officially doesn't involve U.S. Uh, the United States in terms of direct troops, but uh, it does involve direct U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and their bombing and their blockades of Yemen. So let's just get right into it. How did this war start? What is the background? Um, and from the from the limited coverage that I've seen, which is which is really hardly any at all, uh, the very small amount of coverage seems to imply that this is somehow Trump's war. But this started back in 2015. So clearly there's more to it than just Donald Trump wanting to start some new war. So if you could just lay it out in in whatever fashion you find best, who are the players here? How did this start? What is going on?
1: Well, every assertion of fact that you made so far has been absolutely correct that the war, this phase of the war started back in 2015. So it's definitely a bipartisan thing. And uh, the war, you know, they say is the Saudi led coalition and yet america is the world superpower the world empire and saudi arabia is the satellite state and as has been shown you know repeatedly in all of the major most important news outlets like the new york times the washington post the wall street journal as well as you know in government records and senate testimony and everything else it's come out that the americans are in charge of every bit of this operation from collecting intelligence and planning and the targeting Uh, From overseeing the operations to providing mid-air refueling for the Saudi bombers as they go on their sorties, and of course, providing all the Saudis' war materiel in the first place, and providing diplomatic cover for them in the United Nations and everywhere else, Uh, to the Yemenis, this is the American-Saudi war. It's not Saudi-led, it's, you know, it's Saudi princelings flying the jets, but it's clearly an American operation, it has been all along
0: sounds like it's more United States led and and maybe Saudi carried out, if anything.
1: Yeah, in a sense, you know, they're working together as far as that goes. And, it you know, it really is, I think, a Saudi policy that the Americans are going along with. I think the Americans, even never mind you and me and the American people and what we would think of as the national interest. I don't even think the American empire has much of an interest in Yemen. Now, there are some... Who possibly believe their own hype about how Iran is behind the Houthi government there. And that's why we have to bomb it. So maybe on the furthest, you know, pro-Israel right wing of American foreign policy, do you see like a real belief that we must do something about Iran and Yemen or something like that? The rest of them don't. They're basically just going along with this thing.
0: And it's not like you see, you know, politicians out there, like for other wars that, you know, we publicly admit we're involved in and talk about. You don't see you now he's gone now. But the John McCain's of the world and those of his ilk, you don't see them out there supporting a war in Yemen. It's just not talked about. It's just not discussed.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, John McCain was for it. And there is. I'm somewhat. sure if
0: anyone was going to be, it would be John McCain.
1: Well, you're right, though. I mean, look. The um, well, there's two different things here. I mean, first of all, it should be said that there are those in the House and the Senate who have tried to stop this and have tried to intervene and have failed so far. And there are devils in the in the Congress, like John McCain, who've pushed for this thing and for continuing it. But your second point is still right, though, or your overall thrust or your what you're saying is right, that, you know, the ratio between the level of violence here and the degree to which anyone in America has to care about it at all is you know, extraordinary. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's like if George Bush started Iraq War II, but without any of the fanfare, they just did it and no one even cared. I and mean, can you imagine no one even cared? And that's where we're at now, where Obama can start a war in Libya, can back al Qaeda in Syria for five years, can launch this war, which also is in essence a pro-Al Qaeda war in Yemen against their worst enemies, the Houthis. And I will give you the lowdown on who's who and what, what all the fighting is. But just overall here, they can pursue these policies now and no one even cares anymore. You know, I mean, you can actually read about some outrage about Afghanistan just because it's been going on for 17 years and nobody knows, you know, how to have peace with victory. And so they, you know, the thing just goes on. And so you do see some complaints about that in the media, at least in the written media, but there's virtually no coverage of the wars.
0: Now, I think if you uh, polled the average person on the street, most people at least if you led them along a little bit, might be vaguely aware that the United States has some kind of operation going on in Afghanistan. But I'm willing to bet, I mean, every t- person I bring this up to outside of my libertarian bubble has no idea this is even a thing. They pr- Not only do they not know, you know, that we are involved in a war in Yemen in some way, most of them probably don't even know Yemen exists. So, like, this is the most under-discussed, under-talked about war, and that's why I wanted to highlight it today.
1: Right. Well, and it is, you know... Uh just an absolute incredible level of violence. Tens of thousands of people have been bombed to death and hundreds of thousands at least have died of deprivation there. Um, you know, the UN says fifty thousand children have died of deprivation. Uh it's the worst cholera outbreak in generations, anyway, some say in recorded history. I, I will say that the estimates of one million cases of cholera are a bit overblown. I've talked with the people from Doctors Without Borders and Oxfam and that kind of thing on my show, and it got to a point where they basically just counted anybody with diarrhea as having cholera because it was a huge percentage of them, and the treatment was basically the same: keep them hydrated, and you know, hope they make it through. Um, and so, but it was at least tens of thousands of cases. Of cholera last year,
0: and, and I, I'm not you know I'm not a medical expert, but as far as I know, like basically all you need to not die of cholera is like clean water and hydration, is
1: that right? right? And, yeah, and you just need to that's make that's it through a few days. Dying. Yeah, you don't even need a course of antibiotics. It's one of the most easily treatable things. But their you know their entire healthcare system is completely shattered, and no less from the Saudis outright bombing their hospitals. You know the Saudis slash Americans outright bombing their hospitals. And bombing their waterworks. And then, it, you know, there's also been major outbreaks of diphtheria. And um, so it's been, abs- and it, this is the poorest country in the Middle East. They have some oil, but not very much of it developed. Um, it's, it, you know, is as poor as Somalia across the Red Sea there. And so this is the most powerful country in the history of the solar system. You know, our American empire picking on virtually the weakest collection of people on the planet who can't possibly fight back against us, who couldn't possibly have a thing against us. You know, they count, they they chant uh, death to Jews, death to uh, to uh, Israel, death to America or whatever. But who cares? So what, right? That's like your girlfriend's five-year-old little brother punches you in the leg and doesn't like you. But how seriously are you supposed to take that, right? They, they didn't do anything to us. They don't threaten us. And that's the Houthis there.
0: And the reason they chant these things are, are largely because of said bombing, said involvement, not just in their country, but in the Middle East overall.
1: Exactly. And, and then the Yemenis who actually have attacked us are al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who sent the underpants bomber, uh, who tried to blow up the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day uh, 2009. And those are the guys we're fighting for now. You know, we still have a CIA drone war against them, but we're actually taking, you know, this whole, the major war going on here is the war against their enemies, the Houthis. And, and we you know, even the Associated Press has had all these stories, uh, including one just uh, two weeks ago, about how the United Arab Emirates, which is, you know, part of the coalition here, is cutting deals and paying al-Qaeda to fight as their mercenaries in this fight against the Houthis. So, you know, there's a Yemen expert named Michael Horton, no relation to me. What
0: are the odds but, that two, two uh, Yemen experts are, have the last name of Horton?
1: Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, yeah, I'm kind of a secondhand dealer in information, but uh, he's a real expert and, and writes for the American Conservative magazine and so forth. And three years ago, three and a half years ago, right as the war was getting started, he talked to uh, the great Pentagon reporter, Mark Perry, and he said about John McCain that, oh, John McCain complains that we're flying as Iran's air force in Iraq brackets because of john mccain of course but anyway john mccain complains we're flying as iran's air force in iraq but we're flying as al-qaeda's air force in yemen and that's been the case this whole time so if the american people had an interest there at all and i'm not saying i would endorse anything but strict non-interventionism but if there's anyone there who the american people have an interest in fighting in any sense it's those that our government is now fighting for.
0: And I think a lot of these things, like for people that aren't super into foreign policy, just a little, a lot of the little phrases might be confusing, like being Al Qaeda's air force, fighting a war for Al Qaeda. People that aren't really familiar with this might just be thinking to themselves, how is that even possible? How would the United States be fighting for Al Qaeda? That makes no sense. So can you explain a little bit further just what you mean by that? What, what it means to be saying we're fighting on the side of Al Qaeda, fighting for Al Qaeda?
1: Okay, well— So, and this goes back to your first question about, so what the hell is going on here anyway? We kind of jumped ahead. So here's what's going on here, okay? 2009, Barack Obama's the new president. He comes in and he tells the CIA to unleash the drones against al-Qaeda in Pakistan and in Yemen specifically, also Somalia.
0: And that part is fairly straightforward with the the storyline anyway of American foreign policy. We're out to get al-Qaeda, out to get all these terrorists that caused 9-11.
1: Right. Right. At least this on the face of it makes sense, right? That George Bush, you know, there, there were 400 al-Qaeda guys when George Bush took office. There were about 4,000 by the time he left. So Obama came in and said, let's start bombing these guys at least. So, but in order to do that, so, you know, this is the, the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula is what we're talking about here. Right across the Red Sea from the Horn of Africa. And, you know, now the whole Arabian Peninsula tilts toward the northwest, but you understand what I mean, you know, all things being equal, we're talking about the southwest corner of the peninsula here. So in the south of the country there is mostly where the al-Qaeda types live. And these are, you know, their leadership sworn loyal time in al-Zawahiri, okay? So Obama is bribing the dictator whose name was Saleh, and he ruled the capital city of Sana, which is right about in the middle of the country, Okay. And Obama was bribing him with guns and money to allow the CIA to wage the drone war against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, okay? Now, the more Obama bombed them and the CIA bombed them, the bigger they got. You know, these aren't surgical strikes, right? These are 500-pound bombs. Weird
0: how that works. If only there were a group of people that were pointing this out the whole time for the last 10, 15 years. Exactly. This is what happens. But, you know, that that aside.
1: So, right, yeah, we're not not even at the treason part yet. We're at just the counterproductive war against them that might as well be treason because it only accomplishes their goal of, it's like pouring water on a plant, you know. Um, It's like Mickey Mouse chopping up the broom in Fantasia. And the broom is carrying the buckets of water and he just multiplies his problems.
0: Right. These weeds are growing. Let's put them outside and, and pour water and fertilize. Yeah. Right.
1: So <laughs> in any case, so the more Obama bribes Saleh with guns and money to allow the CIA to bomb al-Qaeda and make more of them, the more Sala takes those guns and that money and including some of the al-Qaeda guys because he's playing a double game, And he uses them to attack this group in the north of Yemen, up near the Saudi border, called the Houthis. Now, the Houthis are what's known as Zaydi Shia, which is different than the Iranian Shia, and it's really much closer to Sunni Islam anyway. They pray side by side, but it's, you know, somewhat of a different sect. And now the Houthis is a political designation. That's not a religious designation or an ethnic designation. That's a political faction that dates back only about 25 years, I think, or maybe longer than that. Um, Anyway, so Salah keeps picking a fight with these Houthis, and every time he picks a fight with them, they also grow in response. They defeat him every time, and this becomes counterproductive for Salah. Okay, that's about the status quo for a couple years.
0: It's almost like there's a universal lesson to be learned here.
1: Yeah, but somewhere in there, right? right? And then, but no, wait, there's more. It gets worse. So the Arab Spring comes. And all factions decide to turn against Saleh. Nobody supports Saleh anymore. And there's massive protests. And there are a couple assassination attempts. And one of them actually is a bombing that wounds him. And so while he's out convalescing, the Saudis and the Americans conspire to basically kick him out of office and replace him with his vice president. Hillary Clinton parachuted in. And said, this is the advent of Yemeni democracy.
0: I know that's a metaphor, but it's a hilarious visual of of, of Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Literally, in my mind, she's literally parachuting in. But (laughs) Yeah, right. Skin
1: in the game. She likes to talk about that. Skin in the game. Like she's ever actually in danger in any way, you know. Um, But so um, they held, literally, they held uh, an election with one man on the ballot. And you can just Google Sala or or Google uh, H-A-D-I, Hadi Hadi and put that in your Google images, and you'll see the ballot with one face and and one little oval to check. And and this was democracy. And it was, you know, basically, they just pushed out the, the president in favor of the vice president, the Saudi favorite.
0: You'd think they'd at least put up a, a paper candidate just to, you know, have on there and, you know, just to at least put on a little bit of a show. But
1: yeah, no, they didn't bother trying that hard. <laughs> well, so the problem was, though, is that Hadi was a loser. The Saudis liked him and the Americans liked him. But he had no major political faction in Yemen that backed him. And so his days were numbered pretty much right off the bat. And then get this, Salah, the former dictator, well, he said, you can't fire me, I quit. And he took the army with him, like a lot of it. You know, not the whole army, but say, I don't know, two thirds of the army stayed loyal to the former dictator. And then guess what? He went and made an alliance with the Houthis up north. Because even though he wasn't a Houthi, he was a Zaydi Shia like them. And so he went and made a deal with his former enemies, combined the army that had beat his army four or five times with his army that they had beat four or five times. Wow. And now they came together and they marched down on the capital city in 2014. Uh, they ended up taking the capital city at the beginning of 2015. Now, Barack Obama is on video himself admitting that he knows, the intelligence has, you know, the intercepts or whatever it is, that the Iranians told the Houthis, their friends, not to take the capital city. If you take the capital city of Sanaa, you're just going to drive the Saudis crazy. So the Iranians were not counseling that. Yeah, stick it to them. Take all you can get. Sack the capital, blah, blah, blah.
0: And that is that is one of the talking points of the neocons or the warmongers right. or whatever right now that we have to do this. The, the little you hear them talking about it because of Iran. So that, yeah, exactly. That, that, they- that kind of pros, g- goes counter to that point.
1: Right. And in fact, there's a great article. There's a bunch of great articles about this, but there's a a really good one in foreign policy by Eust Hilterman called The Houthis Are Not Hezbollah. And it's about how, you know, the the level of relationship between Iran and the Houthi faction in Yemen is just nothing like the uh, Hezbollah party in southern Lebanon, uh, the Hezbollah militia there that, um, you know, is extremely closely tied to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and all that The Houthis basically are their friends. And really, you know, numerous uh, Yemeni experts have said that, including, you know, actual Yemeni reporters I've talked to about it, that the most mileage that Iran has gotten out of this entire thing has simply been in the Saudi and American propaganda, giving them credit for everything the Houthis do when they're really trying to blame them. Right. But it comes out from their side. It comes out like they get the credit for everything that the Houthis do is, is, you know, blamed on Iran. But they're not Iranian Revolutionary Guards forces on the ground. They're advising them, arming them. You know, the Americans keep claiming that they have Iranian missiles, that the Iranians are selling them these, you know, intermediate-range missiles or, or, you know, uh, uh, some kind of mid-range missiles. Well, America's Navy has Yemen under total blockade for the last three and a half years. They can't get food in. How in the hell are they supposed to get Iranian missiles in? And in fact, even Jane's Defense Weekly, the trade magazine of the arms dealers, said, no, no, no. These, you know, um, uh, um, uh, the U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, gave this big presentation with a missile behind her. That was the wreckage of the the missile the the Houthis had fired at the Saudis. And uh, she says, look, you know, this is an Iranian missile, blah, blah, blah. And. Uh, Jane's Defense Weekly said, no, that's not true. That's a North Korean missile. And the Yemenis and the Iranians both bought them from North Korea a long time ago. So don't give me, you know, they, it was debunked by true industry experts immediately, uh, their claims there. And so that's the excuse for this. All of this is that the Houthis are the Iranians and that therefore any success that the Houthis have in that country is a success for Iran and that's why it has to be rolled back. And so then it was right at that time in March 2015 when they took the capital city in alliance with Saleh that the Saudis, with Obama's full permission and cooperation, launched the war.
0: So what is the end goal here for Saudi Arabia? Do they just basically want to see someone in power that is friendly to their government? I mean, what interest do they have? You said that Yemen doesn't have that much oil, doesn't have that much resources. They're the poorest country in the Middle East. What is really the motivation to even be involved here at all
1: for them? Well, so that's a very interesting question. I think that the actual bottom line is it's kind of – it's a thing where it's not a good enough answer in terms of, again, like the ratio between the attention paid and the level of crisis here. Um, well, the level of excuse for this war and the level of, of grief and, and uh, crisis that's come out of it, um, you know, is, is pretty astounding. Um, again, the whole thing about Iran is really, you know, a hoax. I think some of these people talk themselves into believing it, but I think, you know, it's, it's vastly overblown. And what it really comes down to is MBS, now the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the de facto king, his father's, you know, in his 80s and by all accounts, quite senile. And at the time that this war was launched right at the spring of 2015, MBS had just been named the deputy crown prince and the defense minister. And so he had this, you know, big incentive to launch a war in order to solidify his own political position. You know, the ultimate in public choice theory, basically. And then this is the same guy who, in the name of anti-corruption, which is true enough, but not truly the motive, had all of his uncles and cousins rounded up and arrested and seized all their wealth.
0: It's true they're corrupt, but it's not true that that's the motivation.
1: That's right. And made sure that he will be the crown and promoted himself to crown prince from deputy crown prince that he is now the heir apparent to the throne there, and this was a big part of it, was launching this war, in, you know, in order to solidify his position inside the bureaucracy.
0: So, is this ultimately some uh, really messed up Saudi machismo thing? Then, at the end of the day, is this about yeah. this crown prince? And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about him for people that aren't familiar. But he came into power very recently, and that kind of coincides with the escalation of this war. So, is is, right. is this like Bush's? Iraq, like, look at me. I've got, I'm going to get the bad guys. I'm your guy. I got you covered. Is that basically what this right. is? Only in a, I don't know if it's a more disastrous way, but uh, it may, I mean, in many ways it seems to be. Yeah.
1: You know. I mean, the W. Bush comparison is a great one, right? Cause here he, all he is is a spoiled, rotten brat who doesn't know anything. Right, He's yeah. a cruel little bastard who, who doesn't know anything about anything. He named it Operation Decisive Storm, or that was maybe what the Pentagon named it. At the height of this, you know, ignorant arrogance that we're just going to go in there and bomb them. And they're going to have to kneel before Zad and do whatever we say. And it hadn't worked out like that at all. Right. It's three and a half years later. <clears throat> and um, so, uh, you know, another part of this was, and this is a big part of the Syria policy too, I think is that Obama made the decision, which at the end of the day, I still think I guess was the right decision. This part of it to go ahead and pursue the Iranian nuclear deal. Now, I think you and I may have talked about this before, but just in a nutshell here real quick.
0: Yeah, we did a show on it. I'll, okay, I'll link cool. to it in today's show notes. But right after the nuclear deal, we did so, a show So, you know, on
1: it. hear me now, believe me later after you watch the other thing where we really go in depth about it. But the point is that we didn't need a nuclear deal with Iran. Iran wasn't making nuclear weapons. Iran had a latent nuclear capability in a civilian nuclear program that was maturing And they had a lot of centrifuges, and they basically had the ability to make a bomb within a year if they began to try to start cranking out bombs, which is still plenty of time for America and Israel to start a war, for Christ's sake. Not like I'm saying that's okay. But the frame of the issue was that this is a dire emergency, that this amounts to a loophole in the nonproliferation treaty, that they can position themselves a year from a bomb. So what Obama did, that's the breakout capability. And even then, it's a year from the fissile core, not necessarily the warhead, the delivery vehicle, the missile, the anything else, but you know the machining of the parts or anything. But anyway, um, it's it's a slippery fl- uh, phrase, a breakout capability. I don't want to just use it their way when it's really you know.
0: You don't want to own the neocon phrasing.
1: Yeah. So i got to build in my own disclaimer there when I use their phrase. But anyway, so what Obama did was this. Obama said we're going to take this giant fake stupid issue off the table. This is the single most dangerous outstanding conflict between America and Iran is the accusation that they're building nuclear weapons and we got to stop them. So Obama said we're going to do a deal just on this. We're not going to bring in any other issues. We're going to just do this. And he made a deal that really locked down their program severely in exchange for sanctions relief. And whatever, you know, crybaby stuff you hear about loopholes in the deal are nonsense. They weren't making any nukes in the first place. Didn't have anything to hide in the first place. That's why it was so easy for them to sign up to the deal with all the new expanded inspections and everything.
0: So you would say Trump's claims that the, the deal was, you know, lopsided in favor of Iran and that there's all these, you know, it's just a typical Trump rhetoric, I guess.
1: No, so it's, it's a bunch of garbage. At, the worst was they got some of their own money back that Jimmy Carter had seized during the revolution back in 79, right? That was the pay, the big payoff.
0: Is that that like airplane full of money we hear about? Is that, is that what that is?
1: Yeah, is that- the pallet of cash. The giant, oh, my God, you sent him a pallet of cash as though it was all welfare money from the American taxpayer. It was their own money. I mean, I hate to give John Kerry credit for anything, but like, okay, and then we're going to give you billions of dollars. But it's going to be that money that the world court already ruled that we have to pay you back anyway. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's a pretty good bribe.
0: So that was actually separately ruled upon, aside from that deal that, that they did. They were owed that money back.
1: Right. Yeah. And it wasn't the world court, but I'm sorry, it was the International Court of Settlement or some kind of thing that, yeah, they were going to have to pay it back anyway. Um, But so anyway, um, the problem was that the Saudis were afraid that this meant that Obama really meant to tilt the United States back toward Iran, which is ridiculous. Right. And there's just no way in the world that Obama even wanted that, much less would have dared to try to do that. Um, you know, that was just absolutely outside of the question. No way. But they were apparently worried that the Saudi place in the American dominated order in the Middle East was in jeopardy, that we were going to start offshore balancing against them and whatever. And so, you know, in order, basically, and this is the way the Obama people put it in the New York Times, it's the most important thing about this whole damn war, other than the actual dead bodies. And that is, The Obama people's excuse that they made in the New York Times. You know, this is not some secret scoop. This is based on 17 White House sources or something like that from the Obama guys. And what they said was, we have to placate the Saudis. Because after the Iran deal, boo-hoo, we hurt their feelings. They're worried about their place in our order over there. And so to reassure them, we have to launch this war. And they use the phrase, it's in the same paragraph, they say, even though the consensus in the White House was that if they launched this war, it would be long, bloody, and indeterminate. Long, bloody, and indeterminate. But, oh well, you gotta do what you gotta do because we have to placate the Saudis after the Iran deal. And I think, you know, this is a huge part of what was going on in Syria too, that, you know what, even though we're doing the Iran deal, we also are going to go along with the Saudi-Turkish-Israeli uh, policy to take Assad down a peg in order to weaken Iran in Syria just to prove that we don't love them. It's just this one deal that we're doing.
0: So it's basically a, a giant, uh, murderous, barbaric, bloody make-good right. for the Iran deal in many ways.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely horror. And, you know, Nasser Arabi, who's this reporter that I know in Yemen— I think, you know, he used to report for the New York Times and stuff about the war against al-Qaeda there. Uh, They're not so interested in what he has to say nowadays. But, you know, he often will tweet out, save the Yemen humans. What about us? Hey, everyone, stop and give a thought to the Yemen humans today. Look at what they've done. They've bombed these children. They've killed this family. They've done this. They've done that. And it's like, in a way, it's pathetic, right? But on the other hand, it's like, what else has he got? This is the situation that, you know, not just our government, but that American society has put him in, that he has to desperately point out that these are real human beings. Just because you can't hear them scream from here when you kill their grandchildren doesn't mean that they can't really feel that, that it's any different than if somebody had killed your whole family and left your grandmother alone to grieve over them.
0: This is Chris Spangle and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at WeAreLibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian
1: perspective. So please check us out at We Are Libertarians.com. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? Are we in- Always launching ideas in your direction.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about that because, you know, we've talked a lot about the history and the, the, the potential strategies and the reasons for the war, but... At the end of the day, the reason I want to bring so much attention to this is what you're mentioning, the, the human impact, the fact that so many people are just dying completely needlessly. So can you speak more on you know just how the typical Yemeni citizen, the person who is not in a clan, they're not in a tribe, maybe they're not even that religious, they just happen to live in Yemen where all this terrible stuff is going on. How are these people being impacted? Obviously, we, you talked about the cholera outbreak a bit, but what is the day, how is the day-to-day life uh, of a typical Yemeni citizen hindered by what's going on with this war?
1: Well, um, you know, the Americans have helped the Saudis to target their electricity, their waterworks, their marketplaces, uh, you know repeatedly their uh, hospitals and they're even specifically their- you know, there
0: was a bus bomb the other week that the u.s just admitted that yeah they meant to bomb the bus i mean not even you know not even saying it was an accident kind of thing
1: well i think they're saying i think at, n- not quite i think at first they said well it was a legitimate target and now they're saying no it was a mistake but okay,
0: maybe they, they changed their tune i guess since, since i saw a report
1: but- yeah i mean they deliberately blew it up but now they're saying they didn't realize it was kids or you know whatever but I mean, and look, one way or the other, these things are going to happen. And especially in this war, they, they have been deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure, including specifically cholera treatment centers. Uh, you know, bombing funerals, as Obama used to do, uh, especially in Pakistan, the double tap, where you bomb some b- supposed bad guys, then anyone who comes to help them, you bomb them too. And then sometimes you do the triple tap where you wait around a couple hours, and when people finally decide it's safe and they send a few more rescuers out, then you bomb them too. And this is the absolute horror show that America is perpetrating on these people.
0: What is the thought behind that strategy of specifically targeting civilians who are either grieving or I know a lot of rescue teams have been targeted? Is it really just to, you know, crush the the will of the population so much that eventually they have to beg or they have to overrule the government? And it's basically just to crush the population into ceding to their will. Is that the, the idea?
1: That's right. Winston Churchill called it terror bombing. That's exactly what it is you know uh, it's to break the will of the civilian population
0: and you wonder why someone might show up in times square from yemen with a bomb and you know a little bit upset about things and wanting to to hurt people you you wonder why that might happen you don't
1: but right. no well in fact yeah the times square failed attack there that was an american citizen who was a naturalized citizen had a wife had a, a house and i think a kid and a, a professional grade job and a real salary and was living the american dream and then he went home to pakistan to visit some relatives and saw firsthand the results of a drone strike over there in Pakistan. That was the one and only time that the Pakistani Taliban ever attacked America. They sent that guy. He said he met them and said, you know, I'm a citizen. I can get back into America and I'm at your service in order to get revenge for that. I was and and he, he had a big argument with the judge all about it with a judge said, how dare you? You were trying to kill women and children. And he said, well, what about the drones over there in Pakistan? You kill women and children. It's exactly what you do you don't look around and make sure there's no women and children before you drop your drone bombs over there. That was exactly what it was all about. And, um, you know, in fact, in 2009, the underpants bomber, which by the way, the state department admitted their guy admitted, Patrick Kennedy admitted on C-SPAN in front of Congress, um, or admitted to Congress in front of C-SPAN, I guess, that, uh, they had deliberately let that guy change planes in the Netherlands. They wanted to follow him to the U S and figure out who he was talking to.
0: Right. That was testified in, in his trial by, I believe, one of the witnesses as well, that he saw the FBI say, right. literally state, put this guy on the plane, put him on the plane.
1: Right. I don't, I don't know if it was the FBI, but somebody. Yeah. 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 Uh, some intelligence agency, right. I think. But yeah. And then he almost blew up that plane over Detroit. Well, that was six weeks after Obama had started the drone war in Yemen. And we're all, you know, you're always supposed to say that whatever we do, just like the Israelis, whatever they do is always a retaliation because the other side started it. But the reality is always, just like with the Israelis, the opposite. You know, we, we're the ones who start the war, then they retaliate and we say, how dare you attack us? Now look at what you made us do. And then we go and do all the rest of this crazy stuff. But then, so now again, this group that uh, the Saudis hate so much, the Houthis. Well, they're the enemies of al-qaeda remember sala used some of the al-qaeda guys to fight back against them so the al-qaeda guys you know have grown ever since the, the fall of the government there and the launch of the war they've grown in power and influence aqap there in southern yemen to a great degree including you know seizing entire towns and tax bases and um including taking military bases the other kind you know armories raiding them and all this kind of thing. They had a port town that they controlled for a while until the UAE kind of supposedly rousted them out of there. But I think it just kind of asked them to leave. And they've been recruiting them and using them. So the UAE is part, they're basically, uh, you know, pushing and funding the ground force there. Uh, the Saudis are waging the air war and it's mostly a mercenary army from what I gather. And they've been quite credibly accused repeatedly of torture. And including, there's a new UN report that just came out about their massive sexual war crimes, uh, rape of men and women. And you might remember this one from about a year ago, where it came out that they were torturing men at least by roasting them on a spit, like a pig on a spit over an open flame.
0: I didn't. I did not hear yeah. this one.
1: Um, and then uh, there was just this new uh, new uh, AP report about them hiring, outright making deals with the Al-Qaeda guys to go and fight the Houthis. So we are quite literally flying the USAF, the U.S. Navy enforcing the blockade, the U.S. Air Force refueling these American planes that the Saudis are flying to bomb these targets that the Americans are helping pick out. Um, They are flying literally as Al-Qaeda's Air Force.
0: Unbelievable. I guess the the only thing making it not, uh, you know, the only thing making it Saudi it seems is maybe the actual pilot there. And then, you know,
1: right. And you know what, even then I have, I don't know exactly how you characterize this. Okay. I have three different sources, but each of my three different sources, they just heard it from one source each, right? My three different sources, they don't know it. They each have one source, but it's getting pretty thick though anyway. And the story is that at least at the beginning of this war, that there were literally American white boys sitting in the back seats of these F-15s, holding the Saudi princeling's little hands all the way to their targets to bomb and kill these civilians. Yeah,
0: I've heard that as well. I don't know if it was from you or, or somewhere else, but uh, yeah, I've, I've just I've heard that one a few times. So
1: I believe it too.
0: It, it it sounds as believable as anything else.
1: Yep, and and look, the Americans are responsible for all of the care and feeding of the planes on the ground. The princes don't do that stuff. You know, that's American contractors, ex-Air Force guys mostly, but also military guys over there doing all the cleaning and all the maintenance and all the rearming and all the everything.
0: Well, well, Scott, I know there's no easy answer to this one. I mean, it's basically just what you're doing right now, trying to spread the word about it. But what can, you know, the average, say, listener of this program do to, obviously, the you know, a single person can... Donate to
1: Doctors Without Borders. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a big... um. I don't want to say call your congressman in the sense that like, oh, I believe in the system and it can work for you and me if only we try or whatever. But on the other hand, you know, without having faith in it, I think it is still worth a try. I think it does matter. There's enough anecdotal evidence from people who work on the Hill that when the phone's ringing and people are mad as hell about something, the congressmen and women, they take note of that. They're worried about what you're worried about. If you make them be
0: right. I mean, when we had the red line in Syria, I think it was back in 2011, that Obama, it looked it looked like for sure Obama was going to go into Syria, but it basically was just a, a barrage of phone calls that that stopped him from doing it. So it's, right. there, it's, it's not like there's no evidence that this could actually have an effect.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is it really could. Um, it just, I mean, there are 300 million of us, you know, so it shouldn't take a very big percentage of that to be loud enough. You know, to make it clear how much we care about this, and you know what I'm sorry because I got off on whichever tangent, I didn't answer your question about how the regular you know average people who aren't part of any fighting faction are suffering here, and you know the the thing is again, it's the poorest country in the world. they were greatly dependent on uh imports for their food in the first place, and then we've had basically a total blockade against commercial traffic and everything but humanitarian aid getting through there, and I guess some commercial traffic, but you know much less than before. And so there is food, but the prices are just absolutely through the roof. And so, um, you know, what you have, you don't have a massive famine. You know, people are looking for, you know, you may be too young for this, but uh, 1984 USA for Africa, Michael Jackson and Cyndi Lauper, and everyone hold hands across America.
0: I'm just old enough to vaguely remember it.
1: Okay. So hands across America to raise money, and that was for the Ethiopians who were starving because they lived in uh, Sayed Barre's communist, you know, concentration camps, basically collective farms, and so they were starving under communism there. But then, so the pictures are of the most desperate people, you know, this side of death anywhere, you know, with the swollen bellies and flies all over their eyes and just laying in the dirt waiting to die, and so in in Yemen it's not like that they're not living on communist collective farms they're not you know available for those particular kind of photo ops but most of the population they live way out in the countryside and so they just die desperate and quiet and alone they die of the flu right they die of things that are easily curable diseases at any other time except they have no clean water they there is no hospital because the Americans and Saudis blew it up Uh, there is no distribution network. There's no good roads. There's no affordable gasoline. The entire infrastructure of the country is broken. And so people are absolutely desperate and starving and dying
0: basically they die of what everyone died of you know 500 a thousand years ago right. only there's no reason for that now there's no reason they need to be dying of that it's specifically because we are preventing them from getting the very basic very simple things that they need to live
1: yeah and you know you also asked me well what exactly do the saudis want well supposedly they want to put Hadi back on the throne but that is never going to happen so here we have you know Uh, the irresistible force and the unmovable object and they're going nowhere
0: that, well, we can't leave because we got to win it and we can't win it. So we can't leave. Right. So here we are. Yep,
1: exactly. And so here we are three and a half years on and we just keep bombing them and bombing them and bombing them. And, uh, the people keep going hungrier and hungrier. And, uh, there's really no end in sight. I mean, you know, America has Saudis back in the United nations and et cetera, et cetera. And so, There's no real diplomatic pressure on them. And they know it. They can get away. And, you know, Trump actually, during the campaign, liked to say, yeah, it wasn't Iran that bombed the towers. It was Saudi. And like, wow, that's going pretty far for, you know, putting it that way. And then he comes into power and he goes, he puts his hands on their orb and he believes and recycles their claim that they're going to spend $110 billion on weapons, which is probably about 10 times more than they're actually going to spend. But still... You know, it's still a hell of a lot. But then, so he's all excited. Yeah, did you see me and what a great job I did cutting that arms deal with the Saudis? You know, for him, it's all his personal narrative of his great success. He's a puppet on their string, dude. You know, they completely own his ass.
0: It's another great business deal.
1: And he's perfectly happy with it that way. They promised that they would put pressure on the Palestinians to, I don't know what, move to Jordan or something.
0: Well, Scott, I really appreciate just the, a, the fact that you're even out there talking about this stuff, because foreign policy in general, obviously, is an important area that is often ignored by the American populace. But even within that realm, this one just seems more and more ignored than just about anything else out there besides the other, the other subject that you focus on with your book, Fool's Errand, Afghanistan. So uh, we're going to do a bonus show. You're going to stick around for a bit. But sure. before we do that, why, why don't you just uh, give everybody the, the quick roundup again? I mentioned everything, I think, at the top of the show, but everywhere they can find your work, everywhere they can find your book and all that great stuff.
1: Okay. Well, scotthorton.org for the, uh, the podcast. I got 4,700 interviews there going back to 2003. Uh, scotthorton.org. And then the book is Fool's Errand, and it's also available in audiobook. It's not that long. Ron Paul likes it. Check it out. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm the uh, director of the Libertarian Institute. That's me and Sheldon Richman and Jared LaBelle over there uh, and some other great writers at libertarianinstitute.org. And then I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. And so, if you really want to know what's going on, read Jason Ditz every day. News. Antiwar. Com, and he'll keep you, he'll get you caught up on all this stuff.
0: It sounds like you just don't have enough to do, Scott. It sounds like you just don't have enough going on.
1: Yeah, well, I I I don't make very much doing any of the things I do, so I have to do lots of things all right. the time. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. Liberty doesn't pay, but it's very important work. So I definitely appreciate you being out there talking about this stuff. So, Scott, it's been a pleasure having you on. Once again, we'll do a bonus show in a minute. But until next time, man, keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks, Mark. All right, friends and fans, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Scott Horton. And I guess I guess, when I say enjoy, uh, I just mean you found it informative. Uh, obviously, it's really difficult to enjoy a conversation about such atrocities as the ones that are going on in Yemen, thanks to the Saudi Arabian government, but ultimately thanks to our tax dollars, thanks to our government, uh, the government that uh, our fellow citizens generally support in, in one way or another. So those are who we have to attack. Those are who we have to um just spam and bombard with knowledge about what is going on there and the atrocities that are occurring in our name with our bombs, with our money. And it truly is disturbing, especially since this is largely for no reason. There's not even a a really a feigned national security reason for this. It is just something that Obama got involved in, as Scott says, largely as a kickback for the Iran deal. And now here we are. Trump has continued the policy. The policy has only gotten worse, only gotten more atrocious. This is something that needs to be brought to the attention of as many people as possible. So I do encourage you all to share this program and spread the word about this terrible, terrible war. And the show did not end there where you heard us sign off. Scott actually hung around to do a very special edition of our very popular Patreon-only Lions of Liberty Pride bonus show known as Conspiracy Corner. That's right. Scott and I discussed several conspiracies, uh, including the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination, the CIA's MK Ultra program, and uh, we also touched on the Unabomber case, which, uh, well, You'll have to listen, I guess, to uh, to find out how that all ties in. But it was a really great time having Scott around here and uh, also to have him for a, a really fun bonus show. So please do consider supporting this show on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You get access to all of our exclusive bonus audio content. And, of course, at the $10 level, you also get some access to uh, video content we do as well. So many, many shows out there. There's a League of Liberty show coming later this week, which I record uh, about once a month with Roger Paxson of the Lava Flow podcast, Johnny Roger. Rocket Adams of Blast Off with Johnny Rocket and Raylene Lightheart, as well as Chris Spengel of We Are Libertarians. So look for one of those soon. And uh, there's really another r- big reason to join the Patreon this week specifically, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, the fifth anniversary of the very first episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast will be this coming Thursday, September 13th, 2018. That will be five years to the day since the very first episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast, an interview I conducted with Stefan Kinsella dropped. And we've been batting around ideas about you know how to celebrate this anniversary and uh, what kind of show to do, but ultimately we decided we just wanted to do something with all of us, uh, all of us Lions of Liberty contributors, so we're going to do a big Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor episode, uh, including myself, the other host, Brian McWilliams who hosts Electric Liberty Land every Wednesday, as well as John Odermat, who hosts Felony Friday every single Friday. They are, of course, my co-founders of this podcast and of Lions of Liberty overall. And we're also going to be joined by our series regulars, including Rico, JB, and Howie. The whole crew is going to get on. And uh, that will air a week from today for most of you. But uh, for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon, you're going to get to hear that show the very day. You're going to get to join us for the actual anniversary. That show will be published to Patreon three days from now on September 13th, 2018. So please do join the Pride if you want to celebrate with us. And as a very special bonus, and I don't want to 100% guarantee this, but we are going to do our best because it is an experiment, but we are planning to try to live stream the recording of that show, which will be this coming Wednesday night, and we're We're going to do our best, we're experimenting with some new software, but we're going to try to stream that recording live to the Lions of Liberty Pride on Facebook. So there are many reasons to join the Pride to get early and possibly, hopefully, live access to that very special fifth anniversary show. And if that all wasn't enough, in addition to all the other great content we put out there for as little as $5 a month over on our Patreon, and if that all wasn't enough, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are rolling out this week. You can get it hopefully in the store by the time you listen to this show. Over at lionsofliberty.store, a special five-year anniversary Lions of Liberty t-shirt. And for a very, very limited time only, anybody who joins our Patreon in the next, well, about a week or so from the anniversary. So we're going to keep this going through September 20th, a week from the day that the five-year anniversary show will drop to Patreon members. We are going to have a five-year anniversary t-shirt that is completely free to anyone who signs up for the Lions of Liberty Pride joins us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. If you join at any level, including the $5 level where you normally don't get any sort of free merchandise, just access to the content, uh, you will we will ship you one of those five-year anniversary shirts at no cost yourself. So if you're even considering joining the Lions of Liberty Pride, considering supporting us on Patreon, this is the time to do it. Every single one of you that signs up at $5 or higher to support us on Patreon will receive a special five-year anniversary Lions of Liberty t-shirt now through September 20th at midnight. So go on ahead and check it out at patreon.com slash lionsliberty. Now, for current Patreon supporters, we don't want to leave you in the dust, so you're also going to get a very, very special discount code for those T-shirts as well, and those, of course, will show up in your Patreon inbox. I can't tell you right now because it's a secret for just you people that pay us money. But point being, we're doing a lot to try to celebrate this five-year anniversary. It has been a lot of blood, sweat, and liberty tears we have put into this program, and we are just so grateful to you, everybody that supports this show, so we wanted to give you guys something special uh, for doing so. And we're grateful to every single one of you that hits that download button, that listens to this program, that tells your friends about all the great work we do here at Lions of Liberty. Not just me here every Monday, but like I said, Brian McWilliams with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty every Wednesday as well as John Odermatt every Friday busting up that broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Friends, I thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you really got a lot out of my interview with Scott Horton. And again, like I said, if you want to hear more, just click on over to Patreon and listen to that very special Conspiracy Corner with Scott Horton. Until next time, folks, until this Thursday for the five-year anniversary of this program, you know what I'm going to ask of you, don't you? That's right. I just want you to live long and live free.